1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 15, hear the word of the Lord. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray. Our God, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Constitution of the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico has a list in it of the the rights of the members and uh, the rights of pastors. And one of the rights of pastors, it says, is to have them celebrated on the pastor day. I didn't even know there was a pastor day, but in Mexico there's a pastor day, just like there's a mother's day and a father's day. Well, there's a pastor's day, and it says there that pastors are to be celebrated. That's a right that they have to be celebrated on pastor day. And I know of some churches that had really poor relationships with their pastors, tense relationships with their pastors, and the congregation seemed to be counting the days until they could be done with their pastor, and the pastor counting the days till he could be done with, with the church. But they celebrated Pastor Day with a cake every time it rolled around. And that seemed to me to be a, a very hollow sort of formality. Now, my church never heard of that custom. They never read the Constitution of the National Presbyterian Church, and I don't blame them. Uh, I found it when I was teaching about that Constitution, and I never mentioned it to the church because, in our case, it would have been ridiculous as well, but for the opposite reason. And that, that opposite reason is the church did love me. The church showed kindness all the time. The church always honored me, and so it would have been silly to pick out one certain day and to say, okay, today you're going to honor your pastor. Now, I have to say that they loved me dearly in in many cases, I think, because I was the first and only pastor they'd ever had. And so they didn't know any better. They they didn't know that there's some really good pastors out there. And so they they thought I was the best because I was the only one they knew. And so I I let them think that, and, and it was a great situation. And I experienced the same thing here. And so it's not hard when I come to this text, uh, which talks about how the congregation should treat its pastors. This is is how I've always been treated, and I I thank you, and I thank all the churches. There haven't been many, but I thank the churches in which I've been. And you will have this opportunity to extend this if, by God's grace, we're able to elect elders and elect deacons, then, then you will have more opportunity to do what you're already doing for me. Now, it's not evident, as we read Thessalonians, that there was any problem between the members of the church and the leaders. It's, it's not evident. You don't, you don't pick that up very obviously, as you do in other churches. But at the same time, it's always a good reminder, it's always good counsel uh, to try to keep good relations between uh, not only the leaders and the members, but as you'll see, this instruction goes on not just between members and leaders, but also among the members, and not only just among the members, but it says with everyone else, including, as we'll see, including those who do us harm. So first, 
It begins with, acknowledge and honor your leaders, verse 12. And you see here, in verse 12, it begins, we ask you, brothers, and then it picks up that same, same idea, verse 14, and we urge you, brothers. So that's a break here. So the first one, what's the first thing that the authors are asking? We ask you, brothers, and here the translation is to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly. The first verb, to respect, is simply to know, to know them. But our word acknowledge or to recognize comes from that word know. So it's, it's to recognize them, to acknowledge them in the Lord. And then it also says to esteem them very highly, to regard them exceedingly. Now, it's clear that this is an exhortation to the members. So it tells the members what they should do. It doesn't tell the leaders what they should demand. And so uh, this is not... A, uh, something that leaders should hold over their congregation, but rather this is a, uh, something that the congregation should offer freely and abundantly to the leaders. So leaders shouldn't demand this treatment, but rather, as we see here, should earn it, should earn it. Um, because church leaders are honorable because of their work, and that's the emphasis here, not because of their title. When I come across church leaders who are kind of banging the desk and insisting on being called this or that because they have this title or this degree or something like that, I think there's a problem here. So uh, it's not, it's not a, a, an honor because of a certain title, but rather because of work. And what is the work? And now here it, it turns back on me and anyone who would aspire to be a, a leader in the church. And it mentions three things here. It mentions three verbs. These are the three things that leaders do in the church. Uh, it says laboring, presiding, and admonishing. So those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So this first verb, laboring, is a general verb, but it communicates strenuous effort. And it may include manual labor to make ends meet. Uh, we see this word, word was already used here when the, when the apostles, or rather uh, when the, the missionaries were talking about their work in Thessalonica when they visited. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And so in their case, their labor meant actual manual labor to not to be a burden to the brothers. So it, it, it indicates here hard work. The second verb indicates authority over, presiding, it says that. It says who are over you, but it is not as an overbearing autocrat, it's not as a tyrant, and sometimes that happens when, when leaders fall into sin. One of the sins that is typical of church leaders is abuse of authority, of becoming overbearing, exercising authority in a way that is improper. And here that authority is, it's certainly an authority. It says they're over you, but it's qualified by this expression, in the Lord. So they are not... Autocrats, they are not sovereigns over the congregation. Rather, their authority is a delegated authority, and it is always infused and informed and affected and molded by this phrase. It is authority in the Lord, in the Lord. Um, now, the third verb, it says admonish, and this is a verb that can be 
can be neutral, that is to mean simply instruction, they instruct you in the Lord, but it also, probably in this case, uh, includes the, the correction of errors, that is the admonishment, the exhortation, the correction. So there is that aspect, it's not just positive instruction, but leaders have the sometimes tricky job of, of talking to the congregation and congregants about, about errors in their lives, in their belief or in their actions that need to be corrected. So those are the three activities uh, in general of the elders. Now, then it says something interesting, and it, it seems to come out of the blue. It says, it's talking about to, uh, to esteem them very highly, and it says in love, in love, so love your leaders, esteem them highly in love, and then it says, uh, because of their work, and then it says, be at peace among yourselves. Now, it seems like it's jumping from your relationship with leaders to peace among yourselves, but there may be a couple of connections here. One connection is this. One of the best things you can do for your leaders is to be at peace among yourselves. But as I can tell you by experience, one of the hardest things for the leaders in the church is when the congregation is not at peace. And if you want to rob your leaders of sleep, well, then fight with each other. That is one of the most difficult things that leaders have to deal with. Even if it's not directed against the leaders, it is so difficult when the congregation is not at peace. And so if you want to honor and love and respect your leaders, then be at peace with one another. That is one of the biggest gifts that any congregation can give to their leaders. They don't then have to put out fires all the time and try to reconcile, but can lead the church toward accomplishing its mission. And by the way, this is an aside, but, but that's actually one of the best ways to avoid fighting with each other, and that is to stay on our mission. That's to stay on our mission. When we stay focused on what God has called us to do, we don't have the time and the energy and the effort for petty squabbles among us. But when we lose sight of what God has called us to do as a, as a church, then we tend to turn on each other and, and start fighting about little things. When do, when do soldiers get unruly? Not when they're fighting the enemy, but when they're in the camp with too much time on their hands. And so if we stay on mission, then I don't fear that this church will ever uh, have the problem of having dissent among us. But that's, that's one connection here. The second connection is this, could be this. Those who know how to submit to authority and honor leaders are the kind of people that know how to get along with each other. So the, the people that tend to cause problems in the church are those who refuse to submit to leaders, and then they stir up trouble among themselves. So there is a relationship here. Those who have the skills to do the difficult thing to submit to authority uh, also have the skills to, to submit to each other and to get along with each other. And so then it goes to the second part in verse 14, which talks about how people in the congregation should treat each other, and it mentions three, or rather four, particular situations. The first, and it mentions four groups here, four groups, and it says, and we urge you brothers. Now, some interpreters take the brothers to be the leaders, as if this were only the job of the leaders, but it doesn't look like that, because the brothers in verse 12 are, are the brothers and sisters of the congregation. So it stands to reason that the brothers in verse 14 are, are the same, are all the members of the congregation. So here, there is work not just for the leaders, but here's work for the congregation. And, and, and there are three groups, and then a fourth one mentioned here. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. So the first group, idlers, idlers. And here we see the same verb, admonish. This was the verb that we encountered among the, the work of the leaders, but now it's something that we all do for each other. And it looks like idlers were a problem in the Thessalonian church. Um, we, we've seen this already. If you look at uh, back at chapter 4, verse, verses 11 and 12, it says, uh, We should aspire to live quietly, to mind our own affairs, to work with our own hands, uh, as, they, as it says, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So there's an a, a, a indirect reference to it. It looks like some people were not, not pulling their weight, not providing for themselves uh, when they could. And then if you go to Second Thessalonians, which we'll get to uh, either right after this or more likely after the, after the summer's over, he, he comes out and, and says it very specifically in chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians. Verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. And then down in verse 11, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And so uh, it looks like this was a particular problem of an excellent church, but it, it looks like the church was so generous that some people said, well, this is a, a gravy train I can get on and I don't have to do anything because the church will take care of me, even when they were capable of taking care of themselves. So what do we do? When we have that situation, it says admonishment is appropriate in that situation. And that's what they're doing here. They're saying, get to work. If you can work, then get to work and provide for yourself so that you can have to give to others who can't work. The second group, it calls them faint-hearted here. It's actually an interesting uh, a word in the, in the original language. It's, it's little-souled, little-souled, uh, which, which is similar to faint-hearted, but little-souled. What do the little-souled need? The little-souled need to be encouraged. It says here, to encourage or to console the little souled. Now, somebody can be, and some people by, by constitution are, are little souled. They, 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 tend to be, they tend to be downcast. They tend to be crushed. They tend to be discouraged quite easily. Um, uh, and that's probably because things happen to them in their lives that, that cause them to be that way. Uh, maybe the way they were raised, the, the experiences, the difficult experiences they've had in life. Other people, it may just be a temporary sort of thing. They're not, they're not generally downcast like that, but there's some very difficult situations in life that have, that have crushed them down and have, and, and, have, and have contracted their souls so they, they feel like their souls have been, have been reduced and been, been made small. They, they become faint-hearted. And uh, either way, the attention to the downcast is to give them encouragement. That's what they need. They need consolation. They need encouragement. And this attention to the downcast is, is characteristic of Christians, or should be, because it is characteristic of God himself. God gives attention to the downcast. He gives attention to the crushed. He gives attention to the one who is, is fainting. If you look at a beautiful description in, in Isa, uh, Isaiah 57, Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, 
and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So where does God dwell? Two places, specifically, in the high and holy places and with the crushed, with the downcast. We see that, of course, in the life of Jesus. He, uh, he, he gave attention to those who were, were crushed, crushed by society or crushed by their own sin or crushed by poverty or crushed by death or crushed by mourning. This is characteristic of Christians because it's characteristic of Christ, the high one who became lowly and dwelt with the lowly. That's the second group. The third group are the weak. Now, it doesn't say in what sense they're weak. Were they morally weak? Were they falling into sin? Were they physically weak and having trouble in life getting, doing their tasks? Were they financially weak and having trouble making ends meet? Were they spiritually weak and, 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 and full of, of doubts and weakness in their spirit? However it may be, it doesn't say they need help. They need help. So help those who are weak, which may require a long-term commitment because the weakness may not be a quick fix. And oftentimes weaknesses aren't. It may, it's, it's a devoted help because there may not be an easy way out. And it, there's no guarantee they, they could ever become strong. And so this is, this is a big commitment here. Now, to love people well, this may be obvious here, but to love people well, you need to understand what their needs are. Because here, there are three different applications for three different groups. And if you give the wrong application to a group, then you're not helping. You're not loving them well. Um, and so in order to love people well, we need to understand their needs before we try to help them. Uh, and that's, that's a common error that we commit. Because we want to help. We want to we fix. And we also often want to fix it fast. Uh, and there may not be a fast fix here. We, we often apply the wrong solution. What do we do with the idlers, for example? Sometimes we encourage and help the idlers, which is exactly the opposite of what they need. If we encourage and help the idlers, we are enabling them to continue to be idle. So that's the wrong application. And what do we do with the, the little sold and the weak? Sometimes we admonish them and we tell them to get with the program and we crush them even more. You see, the, the incorrect applications tend to reinforce the problems. And so this is, this is a serious thing that we need to give our attention to. We don't want to enable the idols. We don't want to idlers. We don't want to discourage the little sold and crush their little soul even more. And we don't want to debilitate the weak. When you seek out counsel from someone else, from whom do you seek counsel? You may not have identified this, but you know that you seek counsel from those who will take the time to understand you and then think carefully about what your real needs are and try to apply that salve, that, that aid to your need. You know that when you go to them, uh, if, if you need a, a stiff word of admonition, they will love you enough to give that to you. And you know if you go to them with, with a crushed spirit, they will, they will sit with you in silence and they will pray with you and they will encourage your heart. Or when you show them a weakness, maybe a weakness that you've been covering up and you, 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 you offer it to them and you say, I, I'm weak in this area. We know that they will not uh, cast a, a condemning finger at you, but rather they will try to help you. And if that's the kind of people you seek, then the, the admonition here is to be that kind of people for others. 
And to be that kind of people, we need to listen to them. We need to know them. We need to understand them to know what of these applications to give to them. Now, there's a fourth group, but it's almost not a group because it's everyone. Um, at the end of this, in, in, verse, uh, in verse 14, it says, be patient with, our translation says, be patient with them all. And that, that them kind of gives the idea that it's these three groups. Be patient with all three of these groups. But that them isn't in the original text. And that's why I didn't read it. It says, be patient with all. Whom? Yes, the idols. The idlers, are, they're, they're included in all. The, the, the little soul, they're included in all. The weak are included in all. And, and who else is included in all? Everyone. So be patient with everyone. Now, um, this, this, this quality of patience is one of those qualities that we always want people to apply to us. We always want people to be patient with us. But it's one of those qualities that we, in turn, have trouble applying to other people. Uh, this is a fruit of the Spirit. This is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It, it's not natural for us to be patient, is it? There may be some constitutionally patient people out there, but, but most of us are not constitutionally patient. We don't tend to be. We want things done on our time schedule. And when we're working with other people, we want them to get better on our time schedule as well so that we can get on with things and they can get on with things and we'll be done with whatever they need. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, patience. Now, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit because this is, this is characteristic of God himself. Just as we saw that this attention to the lowly, the downcast, the crushed is, is characteristic of God himself, this patience is characteristic of God himself. We, we just did the book of Exodus before we, did, uh, we did, uh, started in Thessalonians. And Robbie preached on Exodus 34, where we, we hear this declaration about what the Lord is like. And this declaration goes through the scripture. It, 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 it becomes something of a, a, a refrain through the scripture. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. And so why is it a fruit, part of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's, it's characteristic of God to be patient, patient even with sinners, which is where patience especially uh, comes out as necessary. Now, the especial and extreme case of, of showing kindness to others is when people treat us uh, with harm and with evil. And that's after saying, be patient with them, or not them, be patient with all. Then he says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the, the special case. This is the extreme case. This is the most difficult case. Everybody recognizes this. It's easy to do good to those who do good to us. It's easy to be kind to those who are kind to us. It's easy, easy to love those who love us. But it's difficult when they treat us with harm or cause harm and treat us evilly. Sometimes the evil is relatively slight. We, we, we rub up against each other all the time. 
in marriage and family and relationships that we have and, and, and the, the relatively slight uh, slight slights that we, we receive and, and give to others can and should be overlooked. Uh, those, those we should, should learn how to, 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 to pass over those. But at other times, there is great and irreparable harm. There is sometimes life-changing harm that humans cause to each other. And it can't be fixed in this life. And those are the ones that, that are most difficult to, to deal with. But in any case, whether they're slight or medium or, or very severe, in any case, the solution is not to repay with evil those who have mistreated us. That, that's, what, that's what he says, they say first here. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. On the contrary, the Christian response is to do good to others, even to those who do harm to us. Now, this command um, explicitly here includes Christians and everyone else, even non-Christians, because it says here, do good, seek to do good to one another, that is, other Christians, and then he adds here, and to everyone, which includes everyone. Now, the Thessalonian Christians were being persecuted by their own neighbors. Let's remember the situation here that this was not a, a, a light or theoretical command that the authors were writing. They well knew the situation in which the Thessalonians were living because they themselves had been driven out by these hostile mobs. And, and the, the Thessalonian Christians were having to, to stay there and be persecuted by their own neighbors. So, so the authors well knew that they were, they were sending their, their, their fellow believers to do good to those who were actively doing them harm. But this is one of the most radically Christian things that we can do. This is, this is one of the things that is most distinct about Christianity, perhaps most shocking about Christianity, and, and most surprising and glorious about Christianity. It is one of the most radically, at root, Christian things we can do, do good to those who harm us. And the reason for this is, is obvious. And that is because this is hard-baked into Christianity because uh, this, is, this ethic is built upon the gospel itself. It is, it is not some secondary idea. It is, it, it is baked into the gospel itself, which is the story of God's doing good to those who have actively turned away from him and made themselves his enemies. That's the story of the gospel. Perhaps most strikingly, it's described in, in Romans 5 when Paul said this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? That's the gospel. And, and I have to say that as, as I come to texts like this, I, I have trouble saying these things to you 
because I don't know all the hurts that you have. I know some of your hurts. Some of you have talked to me about some of your hurts and the evil that, that people have done to you. But it's hard for me to, to, to tell you, to kind of send you into harm's way, because I know how much this could cost some of you and others of you, I don't know. You haven't, you haven't told me yet of all the, the depths of your hurts and the, the things that people have done to you. So it's hard for me to tell you, go out and, and do good to those who have done evil to you. In, in part because I, I haven't suffered as much as I know some of you have. I have not been mistreated as much as I know some of you have. And so, so it, it, it seems almost wrong on my part to stand here and say to you, go, love those, do good to those who have done evil to you. And you could rightly turn to me and say, Pastor, what do you know about this? And I would be called up short and I would say, I don't know the depths of your suffering, no. And I don't know the depths of how much it's going to cost you to do good to those who have done evil to you. But I do know this, and that is, if you do evil to those who have done evil to you, you have made yourself just like them. But, but, if you do good to those who have done evil to you, you have made yourself just like Christ. Because we can't say to Jesus, you don't know. You don't know what it's like. You don't understand how difficult it is to take such evil from human beings and suffer such abuse. You don't understand. No one can say that to Jesus. Jesus is the one. Even if I don't understand, even if your, your closest relatives don't understand, Jesus understands. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Christ loved us so that he gave his life for us. And then he sends us out and says, you want to shine as followers of Jesus in this world? You want to show people that you're a Christian? Then do good to each other and to everyone else. Let's pray. Our God, even in a, a group of this size, I know that there are wounds that are too deep to mention. Some of them are, are from the past, but they still hurt. Some of them are ongoing, and they constantly hurt. Lord, I, I, I thank you that, that Jesus knows our pain, that he is a friend of sinners. He's acquainted with grief himself. He is one who eats and drinks with sinners. He's the one who welcomes sinners. And he's the one who himself was crushed for our iniquities. And he's the one who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, about those who were even crucifying him in that moment. Lord, I pray that you would enable us, one, to avoid evil, committing evil and suffering evil, Lord. Protect your people from, from harm. Protect us, O oh God. And uh, at the same time, Lord, we know we live in a world in which we will cause harm lamentably and, and that we will suffer harm. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to live as Christians, never to pay evil for evil, even if it's at the level of a, a comment or a harsh response, Lord. 
and certainly nothing severe. Let us never pay evil for evil, Lord. But at the same time, we pray that we would rather be able to go beyond that and, and to pay good for the evil that we have received. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the globe who are being persecuted for their faith, that they would be able to show themselves to be Christians by the fact that they respond with blessing when they are cursed, that they respond with good when they're treated with evil. Lord, enable us, enable them, enable your church to follow Jesus, the one who gave himself for us, his enemies, to make us his friends. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.